Yes, well, now tonight we begin a lecture on the theater of the absurd. And I want to spend a good bit of time in introduction prior to coming to uh, the theater of the absurd itself. For those of you who are uh, trying to study in an orderly way, uh, in reality, uh, this uh, tape immediately should follow number 50, as we have it listed on our tape list, which some of you will remember is a tape that's, that dealt with a philosophy of the 20th century American novel in its first lecture, uh, and including uh, Capote's Cold Blood, the novel The Cold Blood, and the second lecture dealt with Writers in Revolt, which was a it's a paperback edited by Terry Southern uh, on the uh, on the black writers. <coughs> it's usually considered the black writers. Now, in this, we must uh, we should have this in mind if we're going to approach the understanding of what the theater of the absurd isn't and what it is, because the very basis of Capote's Cold Blood. The novel, which is some people believe is the most important novel ever been written in America. One must wait 20 years and see, of course. Uh, but nevertheless, it enters an entirely new uh, stage of writing. In the sense that it is, uh, it is an anti-statement novel. Now, those of you who have been listening to other, other lectures, know we put an emphasis here on anti-philosophy and anti-theology. An anti-philosophy being the philosophy uh, which has come to the position of not seeking for the primary answers that philosophy used to seek for. And this anti-philosophy takes various forms, the existentialism on the continent, uh, and in a very different way, uh, the defining philosophy in England, with it being very different, and yet there is a similarity. The uh, anti-philosophy on the continent has as its concept the, uh, the thought of absurdity and trying to authenticate oneself in an absurd world. The, anti, uh, or the linguistic philosophers in England have come at this a different way, and that is by reducing the field of their interest. So if you think of a philosophy in the past as being two things, first of all defining things, and then seeking big answers to big questions, the modern linguistic philosophy is an anti-philosophy in the sense that all it is is seeking the definitions and no longer seeking the big answers. Now actually, you can go through all of modern life and find that this is the place where uh, men in the Western world have come to. The Marxist world, of course, is an entirely different situation. It is a materialistic, uh, accepted a materialistic base. It is founded, as I have pointed out, especially lecturing from Senhor's book, uh, President of Senegal, uh, the basic thing of the Marxianism is its dialectic. And therefore, it has no absolute answers either. But it has tried an interim, uh, an interim uh, situation by making the state uh, the integration point. 
and the the modern artists in Russia are now pressing against this. The modern poets, and you, there's there's tremendous tension in this. But they have been retarded in this up to this time in drifting into this same situation we have come to in our Western world. They have been retarded. Not that they're not won't come in this direction. I feel certain. But they have been retarded by the fact of all these certain years uh, setting up uh, an arbitrary absolute in the state and therefore uh, trying to uh, state law, for example, in, in reference to the state, but not just law, but its art as well. In the western uh, part of Europe, on the other hand, having cut loose from Christianity and giving up the romantic concepts of hoping to find absolute answers, uh, from Immanuel Kant and back, uh, men have come in their philosophy then to a place of anti-philosophy. Now, this hasn't remained uh, in merely the field of philosophy by any means. Uh, so you have uh, the anti-theology. And anti-theology is, of course, related to the anti-philosophy. And most of the modern theologies are anti-theologies. They end with words, such as uh, uh, the word God. So Tillich ends his whole theology with the word God and with no, no certainty whatsoever that there is anything uh, beyond the word God. But now this, is, uh, this hasn't stood in just the area of philosophy and theology. It is carried down into the arts. And it's this that I want to deal with in these next couple lectures. And so in, by the time you come to Capote's In Cold Blood, you find a situation you find a situation that uh, did not exist before in, a, uh, in an outstanding novel. And that is, it is a novel that simply uh, records the way a machine would record a certain set of events uh, and makes no human judgments. And uh, in this, uh, you'll remember this would re relate uh, to the, what I pointed out about uh, Bergman in his films uh, after the film Silence, or with the film Silence, that with this he isn't giving an answer, he's simply taking a camera and showing you uh, life and then uh, walking away. Now actually Capote has done this in Cold Blood. It's an anti-statement situation. Now in, um, at the same time, uh, when we went on into the black, the writers in revolt, that was the first lecture, the second lecture to the black writers, we pointed out that going back in time, uh, uh, the man to whom they look is the Marquis de Sade, uh, very much the man, very much the man who, um, uh, of course, in most people's mind is related to the word sadism where the word, our word sadism comes from, and he's known as a person who introduced uh, the pleasure of causing pain on others, and especially in the sexual act. Uh, so here you find most cases, if you hear the word uh, the Marquis de Sade, uh, people would think of it merely in this way, that here is a man that put an emphasis on the, the uh, desire to cause a specific pain uh, in the sexual act, and yet as we want to go on and see, there's far more to it than this. Now, Saad, in this, we connected with the fact that you can't just take uh, this as a sort of a, 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 an interesting thing and stop there. And at the end of that second lecture on tape, or in the le uh, lecture, 
the topic 50, we pointed out that in these fairly recent murders on the Moors in the, the, that shocked Britain so much in, the, in England, uh, actually it was uh, the writings of the Marquis de Sade were tied up very closely with the murders. That this, the, the court made a, the lawyers made a great case of the fact that these people who had committed these murders had been reading uh, the writings of the Marquis de Sade. So this is one, uh, this is one element that with his sadism, uh, it is, as the doors are being opened, more people reading the Marquis de Sade, undoubtedly it will result in the, in such things as occurred there on the Moors. No question about this, that it will lead to other people to experiment uh, with the pleasures of afflicting pain and almost always in a sexual setting. However, I would say that even this, as monstrous as we might feel it to be, is not the real danger of, uh, of uh, Sod. And I want to bring you some material tonight from the New York Review of Books, the February 3, 1966 edition. February 3, 1966, the New York Review of Books. And this thing is called Sod's Theater. And it uh, reviews the play, The Persecution and Assassination of Marat, as performed by the in inmates of the Asylum of Charitone under the direction of the Marquis de Sade by Peter Weiss. Uh, the very title is, uh, is something. Nobody gives things titles like this. And uh, the very title is, is a part of the whole structure. So this is a review of Peter Weiss's very, uh, very uh, tremendous play, and the uh, it's being reviewed by Stuart Hampshire. Of the play is performed by the Royal Shakespeare Company, directed by Peter Brook at the Martin Beck Theatre. And usually this play is just called uh, Moray Sod, for short. The Moray, of course, Marat, or we would pronounce it, I suppose. Uh, Marat was the, uh, a man who was murdered in the French Revolution, you remember, while he was in his bathtub. That's what everybody knows about him. Uh, but this play, uh, this play is a play within a play. Because uh, gradually the Marquis de Sade, even though he was an important man at a certain point in the formation of the Revolution, the French Revolution, was shut up finally in the Saint Asylum at Charaton. And there uh, he gave plays. And he used the in inmates for both the actors and the, uh, and the audience. And so is Marat Saad uh, is, a, uh, is a play within a play. It's a play in which Saad uh, puts on a play in, in the Saint Asylum at Sheraton. That's what's involved. Now to read a little bit uh, from this review. The Marquis de Saad, the complete man of the theater, consumed uh, with uh, theatrical, theatricality, who all his life had difficulty in finding audiences to share and to provide an occasion for his endlessly planned uh, theatrical effects. But at last, in the asylum at Charaton, he had a captive audience. He had also a cast that was ideal for his the uh, theatrical purposes, since their grip uh, upon... Uh, Unrepresented reality was likely to be as loose as his own. In other words, they were the inmates. Uh, it goes on a bit further. All the world was for him a theater, not only in the sense that he required a script and an audience for everything that he did, 
but also because he knew no distinction between acting and acting out, and between acting because he felt a certain emotion and acting as if he felt a certain emotion. Although he was an apostle of nature in the 18th century sense, his life was a theatrical artifice. Its incidents a series of set scenes in illustrative tableau. Now we might ask why. Why is it that this man has, now there's two facets, the facets of his sadism, but why is it that it can be said uh, that his whole life was a piece of theater, a whole life of uh, unreality? Well, perhaps there were psychological factors involved, uh, probably were, but I don't think this is the basic thing. The basic thing is rooted back rather in his view of life. It's very important because now Saad is not just a name in history, Saad has become an important modern man. And he's an important modern man because the modern writers uh, all look back uh, to him as uh, their precursor. He is the precursor of uh, the modern way of, of looking at things and of writing in, these, uh, in the so-called writers in revolt. So it's very important to figure this out, not just because here is a man whose name conjures up this other concept of sadism, but because he really has become a force in modern writing. Uh, he, the, uh, the man who's reviewing this points out that Peter's wife uh, had a wonderful idea, and that is a play within a play. And he quite rightly uh, links this up with the modern stage in general of Buchner, uh, Brecht, and Genet. I think he's absolutely right in this. This is not a, an isolated freak. It is something very much linked up to a whole direction today. Now, toward the end of the review, we find this. Uh, we have the reason given as to why, uh, why, though this man doesn't make the connection, uh, I'm making it, uh, as to why Saad really always felt that everything was, had an air of unreality, that everything had an element of theater in it. And here is the reason. Saad was a physiological determinist and accepted the normal implications of this philosophy. Now, this is the key, and it's a very important thing, if you're really going to understand our modern dilemma, to understand this. Uh, and these, these uh, the writers in, absurd, uh, in, the, uh, in revolt and so on, whatever they're, you're going to call them, the, are, the important thing is that they claim Saad. Uh, and the, a lot of people today, of course, who are move, moving in the direction of determinism would try to disown Saad. But in reality, the importance of the Marquis de Sade is that he's quite consistent to his philosophy. And what this turns out to be, of course, is the philosophy of modern man on both sides of the Iron Curtain, which becomes intriguing, and that is a form of determinism. He believed in a physiological, uh, chemical determinism. And the differences between uh, the Marquis de Sade and many people today is that many people today find a romantic escape from their uh, from their either psychological or physiological determinism. But the Marquis de Sade just accepted it. And having accepted it, it led in two directions. That obviously then, it is quite reasonable to be a sadist. And his whole commitment was to nature. In other words, what is, is right. What is, is right. And therefore, because the male is stronger than the female, he has a right to do what he wishes. And this is the basis of his sexual sadism. But it's deeper than this. It's far more deep and far more serious than merely a sadism. Because what it really is a statement is 
of the fact that if you accept, uh, if you really accept a physiological determinism, everything uh, in the way of that which is human becomes unreal. And here you have the understanding of our 20th century situation. And I find it's intriguing that these men are unlocking sod. I remember it was only very, very few years ago that in order to find anything of sods to read, uh, one had to buy them in very strange places. As a matter of fact, I never read anything of his uh, for a long, long time. I knew all about them, but I never read them because you did have to buy them in such, buy, the, buy his works in such strange, strange places. Now suddenly he has become a very important man in literature. It isn't just because of the whole opening of the pornographic either. It's much more profound than that. It's something much more profound. It is that he really, in a really very real sense, can be said to be the father in, uh, of much modern thought. And the difference is that he accepted the implications of his philosophy where other people sometimes try to juggle the two or three balls and keep them in the air at the same time. To read on after that statement about it, the normal implications of his philosophy, there's just a colon, and it reads on, that all plans for moral improvement or for the liberation of man are self-deception. Weiss respects this fact and has written a speech for him, a Lucretian speech for him. Love and war and social domination and the fantasies that accomplish them issue from the imperatives of the body, the haphazard con uh, a consonation of the cells and can have no solution on a political plane. Politics itself is an illusion. At best, play acting, a theater for the display of a given temperament. Only a chemist could calcula calculate the exact intervals that divide the sane from the insane, the feverish and ascetic reformer from, uh, from the saddest. He was te he, uh, we are temporary configurations of the mad whirl of atoms, and our pretended civilization is only fear of nature. The only real contact between persons is the sexual act, which is in itself a kind of a rape. The contact, quote, the contact of two skins and the exchange of two fantasies. Uh, it's uh, horrible, but the simple fact is, I would say, that this is a man who really understood uh, what, uh, what determinism must lead to. On the other hand, in this play, Murat Saad, uh, he puts as it spe he speaks here uh, of uh, Murat being Saad's foil, and he's his foil in this sense: a man of words who make makes no human contact, lapped in the illusion of free will, which cannot soothe him. So therefore, what you have is Murat ready to get murdered in his bathtub, uh, being having the illusion of free will, and pitted against him is Saad, uh, who who is a determinist. And here you have the whole tension of modern man. And I just want to say, no one solved this. Uh, you, there is no such thing as either a man is bound deterministically or he is not. There is no middle ground. And one good thing about living in our generation is there, there's bone-crushing reminders of this in the modern form of the arts, as I want to go on and show. But this hope, I'm reading again, but this hope, Saad implies, is a metaphysical mistake. Freedom is not a historical and social category and cannot be a historical and social achievement. On stage, Saad lays his, hands on, his hand on Murat's shoulder in sympathy. The social revolution is inevitably, inevitable, inevitably about to fail, to die, killed by one of its own children. But it, but it was at least an illusion of freedom. 
when we come to this place, we must understand that the murder on the moors is not the worst part of the legacy of Sod. You can stand a lot of murders on the moors, as horrible as they were, uh, and still not be as bad as the thing that's being carried down to us in modern art uh, from Sod's determinism. So this is this now is is rooted into this whole direction. Um, the Saad accepted this, but in, the interesting thing is that once more Saad could not live with his own position. This is always the place where, where to which we come. And I'm convinced this is always true. I have a review in Time magazine of uh, March 4, 1966, on a recent book out by, by printed by Saad. One wonders what's going to happen to all the dear people reading these. All this is being put out so well. Uh, not understanding it, and yet being overwhelmed by it. And uh, this book is called The Marquis de Sade Selected Letters, edited by Gilbert Laley, 188 pages, October House, $8.50. A lot of money for 188 pages, $8.50. Uh, and the conclusion of this by, uh, by the uh, reviewer in time runs like this. Uh, the reviewer time doesn't have much uh, much time for the Marquis de Sade. And he ends it like this. In his lonely circular cell, he became a devout numerologist and solemnly counted the words or lines in letters he received on a basis uh, as a basis for abstruse and totally nutty calculations that would provide, he believed, the exact date of his release. Now, this is the intriguing thing because... The simple fact is that, therefore, you find the Marquis de Sade himself is parallel uh, to the Aztecs or to the people in India, wherein in India, as I pointed out, people would believe they're bound by fate, and yet at the same time uh, they go about buying for a few rupees uh, amulet, uh, amulets worn around their wrist in order to beat the fates. Very pathetic. The whole concept of the Aztecs uh, with their tremendous mathematics Yet, nevertheless, it was for the same reason, and that is they believed that they were bound by the planets, and yet they believed if they learned enough mathematics, they could beat the planets. And here is the tension of man. People never get beyond this. Now, actually, Saad, in other words, to the end of his life, uh, was fighting with the same problem. He was a determinist, but at the same time, he couldn't accept his position, so he worked out a strange system uh, to try to, uh, to, beat the, to, beat the to beat the situation. Now I'm going to, now at this particular place I want to point out the word absurd because we're talking we're moving toward the theater of the absurd. Here now is two levels of absurdity. First of all, determinism, whether Marxian or non-Marxian, actually leads to uh, absurdity of the individual. Any concept of humanistic man, any concept of the of man as man uh, breaks on this rock. This is absurdity of a real determinism, whether Marxian or a non-Marxian form. But there is a second level of absurdity here, and that is that people can't live with it. So you have two levels of, of um, two levels of absurdity. That uh, if you reduce man to a determinism, uh, you have a, an absurd man with his aspirations. And yet at the same time, uh, this is, becomes doubly absurd in, in that people can't live with it. 
Now, this is very important because this is the situation uh, in much, of course, of the modern arts and nowhere more than in the theater of the observed. Uh, but there's one thing to notice about the Marquis de Sade, and that is he, he expressed this in normal language and normal syntax. Now, this is an important point. So there's two levels of the observed in, in his position, but he used normal language and normal syntax in order to express it, whether in his plays or in his letters, whatever you read of his. Uh, it's just straight flowing words. Use a dictionary, use a grammar, and you can read the Marquis de Sade. Now notice the same thing is true with the, with the existential writers, Sartre and Camus. They state, Sartre would state very firmly that man lives in a totally absurd situation. And... Uh, I, later come to Essling's definition of the absurd, which is a good one. I won't bring it in here. But uh, they would state that we live in a totally absurd situation. But notice something about uh, the writers of uh, Sartre and Camus and others who write this way and say we live in a totally absurd situation, and that is, like the Marquis de Sade before them, uh, they do not use absurd language. They use normal language and normal syntax in order to speak of absurdity. Now, obviously, uh, this becomes strange. If you live in an absurd situation, uh, what are you doing writing in, uh, in normal words and normal syntax? This becomes a, a turning point here. Uh, you can feel this, for example, in, some, in Seaman de Beauvoir. And uh, this recent book of hers, uh, translated recently anyway, called A Very Easy Death by Seaman de Beauvoir, 106 pages, Putman, $3.95, much cheaper book per page. Incidentally. Yeah. Uh, but in it, uh, this Seaman de Beauvoir, whom, for whom I have a real admiration in a certain way, as I think she has courage to play the game pretty far along, in this sense I have admiration for her, as well as for sheer brilliance. Because you must remember that uh, that um, Sartre and she, and she has been his mistress uh, on and off anyway for years, uh, when they graduated from the Sorbonne, she was first in her class, uh, he was first in the class and she was second. One must never forget this. These people are not nobody. They're people of brilliance. And in this book, she's expressed her her. Uh, the feeling of absurdity many ways, but I, in a way, I think this more recent book on the uh, a very easy death maybe touches m me as much as anything, because in it she tells her her reactions to the death of her mother, and her mother died in a hospital, and I have a review here from Newsweek, May 16, 1966, fairly recently, uh, on this uh, on this book. I'll just read along at the end of this review. To the professionals, the doctors and nurses going about their routine tasks, this was only another death in the endless procession, that is, the death of her mother. Indeed, as these things go, it was almost exemplary, relatively quick, relatively painless. A nurse could hardly, could hardly understand the sobbing, that is, the sobbing of Seaman de Beauvoir. One might wish that she had had the right person uh, meet her at that particular moment. I long that for these people. One wonders always what would happen if a Christian who had comprehension, not just a Christian, mind you, 
but a Christian who had comprehension had stood by her side at that particular point. I wonder if Madame if Seaman de Beauvoir would have been become a Christian and with all her gifts. One could wonder. But here we find, therefore, she's sobbing uh, with the death of her mother. And a nurse could hardly understand the sobbing. But Madame, she said, a bit perplexed, I assure you that it was a very easy death. End of quote. And this is the title of her book, A Very Easy Death. Her mother died a long time ago, but, but she couldn't... Uh, uh, she couldn't uh, some time ago, I see. She, her mother died when she was 78. And uh, and here we have, have her death and Seaman de Beauvoir's response. Uh, the hospital was cozy and the attendance first rate. Not everyone could have afforded such solicitous care. She had a very, very, uh, she had a very easy death, Madame de Beauvoir echoes in a coda. Quote, an upper-class death, end of quote. And this is the sharpness now of, of the brilliance of Seaman de Beauvoir. In the end, Madame de Beauvoir is not reconciled to death, her mother's or anybody else's. You do not, this is a quote, you do not die from being born, nor from having lived, nor from old age, she writes. You die from something. And how right she is. She she senses the abnormality uh, of physical death. She uh, she senses here that you can talk theoretically as she and Sartre and the others have endlessly at the cafe tables, uh, at the uh, two maggots and so forth in the past. And you can talk of absurdity, but it looks different when somebody you love dies. Now absurdity becomes, becomes sharp and transient. It becomes overwhelming. And she's quite right you die of something, you see. She understands, some, she understands something more than mere cabbage would understand it. And that is, death really is abnormal. All this twaddle about death being so nice. Uh, someone who has real sensitivity just, just knows very well this isn't the case. There's something abnormal happens at death. To go on in this, uh, there is no, this is, the, this is a continued quotation uh, from her, there is no such thing as a natural death. Nothing that happens to a man is ever natural since his presence calls the world into question. All men must die, but for every man his death is an accident. And even if he knows it or consents, and even if he, he knows it and consents to it, an unjustifiable volition. And this is a totally Christian way to look at death. This is a Christian way to look at death. Death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. And that's what the Bible says. And Seaman de Beauvoir uh, realizes that here is an enemy uh, to which we all lose. And it's a, it becomes almost a symbol of, uh, of total absurdity, of really total absurdity. Um, the life that's lived and then died is, uh, can be seen as in its abnormality of the death as a, as a signboard of the absurdity of man. Up to that point, uh, that could be a Christian statement as well as an existential one. And here you have, therefore, uh, an absurdity uh, expressed by the existentialist, whether theoretically, whether in Sartre's plays, or in something that is close to her own experience as Seaman de Beauvoir's death of her mother, in this very easy death. But notice, in stressing, in the, reading this passage which I quoted from Newsweek, which quoted her book, notice that, again, the words and the syntax were normal. This is what I want to show you. You have an emphasis on uh, abnormality, 
but uh, on absurdity, rather, on absurdity, sorry, on absurdity, but the language is not absurd. Absurdity is stated in non-absurd language. Now, interestingly enough, if those of you who listened to the lecture on the black writers will also remember the same thing was true there. Um, the black writers, uh, no matter how, how far out they are, uh, again, do the same thing. They're expressing the absurdity of life. But expressing the absurdity of life, in each case, uh, the syntax and the words are non-absurd. So here you have now, here I'm making a, a distinction. I'm making the distinction that modern writers, modern art in general, expresses uh, absurdity. On the other side of the Iron Curtain, the Marxists has tried to stop the clock by relating the individual uh, to merely the state and saying to the artist, shut up, just shut up. And that's, of course, exactly what happened after the revolution. The artists who were moving in this same direction were told to keep quiet and have kept quiet in most cases, uh, simply because they didn't want the people to be told exactly uh, what, what it means to be a determinist. Uh, and they tried to slow up the process, and uh, now the process is speeding up again, and they aren't doing as well. So they were able to stop the clock for a certain number of years. Uh, in the West, where we uh, have not had the clock stopped, uh, you have the artists have tumbled all over themselves into the statement increasingly uh, of, uh, of absurdity. But up to this point, each thing has been a, a, a statement of absurdity, that I've talked about tonight, uh, but with a, with one facet, and that is the language uh, and the syntax are not absurd. Now you can go on still further. I would suggest Papa Hemingway is exactly in the same situation. Now we're back further into the more normal stream of the uh, 20th century novel, which we touched upon in the first half. So Papa Hemingway also is a man who understood a dilemma. And uh, he didn't show it. His world was a world of the absurd. He didn't always show it in his works. Because he, like the Marxists, tried an artificial stratagem in order to stop the clock. And that was the, that was the mythology of masculinity. Uh, but in the, And he wrote again in the normal words, normal syntax. A genius in writing. But in his own life, uh, in his own life, the absurdity broke through. And uh, this book called Papa Hemingway by A. E. Hotchner. Um, I have before me now Newsweek Review, April 11, 66, 1966. A lot of people thought he shouldn't have written this book because what he did was to take the, the his conversations over the years uh, with Hemingway and put it out where all the public could read it. And some people got upset. As a matter of fact, he taped a lot of it, and he calls it Poppy Hemingway. And uh, the thing which is most crucial in it is there, it is the account of Hemingway's death. And uh, so we find it runs like this. We find that he was talking to Ava Gardner one time, uh, that is Hemingway, and she, she asked him something about uh, whether he had ever been analyzed. And uh, an ana uh, psychoanalysis, of course. And he runs on like this. A bit rough, but anybody who's ever read Hemingway is not surprised. I'll tell you, even though I've not been a believer in the analysis, I spent a hell of a lot of time killing animals and fish, so I wouldn't kill myself. 
When a man is in rebellion against death, he gets pleasure out of taking to himself one of the godlike attributes, that of giving it. And here you have, it seems to me, uh, exactly the same thing as a theme in de Beauvoir. But much more crass, not nearly as much finesse, not much, not the sensitivity in Hemingway as in Seaman de Beauvoir, a crude man, really, as against the uh, the French finesse of Seaman de Beauvoir. But really in the same situation, rebellion, um, and uh, carrying all the way back, you remember, to the to the quotation from Gauguin, uh, when Gauguin burst forth in this after he's painting What Went With Us. Uh, that all that's left to him is rebellion. But Hemingway understood, just like Madame Seaman de Beauvoir, that the real, the real, uh, the real, uh, real issue is death. And so he feels himself in rebellion against death. And he runs right on. In 1961, after a lifetime of such symbolic acts of self-destruction, the rebel yielded the last fortress, returning to his home in Ketchum, Idaho, after a second stay at the Mayo Clinic as a psychiatric patient. On his way to the clinic, he had tw- he tried twice to jump from the plane. Hemingway, in A.E. Hotchner's words, quote, put a shotgun to his head and killed himself. And then the, the reviewer asks a question. But I think he shows himself uh, not to be so clever as the Marquis de Sade, and he's even asking the question. And the question is this. How did this come to pass? Why? Why should the greatest writer of this century, a man and public monument, with a home in Idaho's Sawtooth Mountains, an apartment in New York, especially rig yacht, to fish in the Gulf Stream, an available apartment at the Ritz in Paris and the Grit in Venice, a solid marriage, no serious physical ills, good friends everywhere, that man of envy of every man, kill himself. Uh, the reviewer, I think, is whistling because the people who write time are not stupid people. And he's just whistling. And before that, he points out that Hemingway was filled with terrors at the end of his life. Absolute terrors, in which really reality slipped from his hands. And I I would just point out, I don't think there's any real difference between this and the Marquis de Sade, where the Marquis de Sade couldn't tell the difference between theater and reality. And I feel it roots back into the same sort of thing. A deterministic view uh, of life uh, a meaningless, absurd view of life uh, comes to this place. And you can try to stop the clock uh, on, in the Marxist way. You can try to stop it with other things, but eventually the clock strikes. And the greater, you, greater your powers of analysis and the greater your courage to look at it, uh, the more overwhelming it becomes. So here you have Papa Hemingway also, I would say, in a word, world of absurdity. His cult of masculinity proved to be ridiculous. And the, um, but again, let's notice I'm repeating myself. I want to make a strong point. And that is again, the absurd was declared nevertheless in normal words and normal syntax. And again, I would point out this raises a strange question. If you really live in the world, in a, an absurd universe, what are you doing using normal words and normal syntax? It becomes a, uh, certainly there's something incongruous here. Now let's move on into cinema. In the cinema, as I've already pointed out with Bergman, you have exactly the same situation. For those of you who haven't heard me lecture on Bergman, uh, Bergman's whole first cycle of cinema uh, went through, he himself said, was to teach existentialism. 
not the individual pictures, uh, cinema, not the individual movies, whatever you call them, want to call them, uh, as much as the total. But uh, with, uh, with the film Silence, he came to the end of this. And silent in the film Silence, he became an anti-statement filmmaker, just as Capote is an anti-statement writer. And he does it simply by fastening his camera on a very uh, unhappy and unlovely scene, an unesthetic scene, uh, and a cruel scene as well, and of course a sexual scene, because these people link much of their thinking into the sexual area, and quite properly, I would say. If there's not much else in life, you can't blame people for trying to find the meaning in the sexual things. It's reasonable to move in this direction. And uh, he just took a series of pictures and uh, made no comments. And it's the fact of his making no comments that links him up with something with the anti-statement writers and with such a book as Cold Blood. Now you have another set of movie makers, however, in Italy, uh, which are which have been known as the double neos. The double neos. And in a way, they're the group that follows the big names, such as Fellini. They would say Fellini's kind of running out, and these people are pushing him. And uh, I've mentioned this to you before, but it's worth reading again, uh, a review on the double neos. And it says this, Brass is one of them, it says this, we think in both statements and questions. We think in both statements and questions. And the quote, and the reviewer says, the omission is significant. Statements and questions, but no answers. And you'll remember, perhaps, uh, the fact that we pointed out in the, uh, in the um, black writers the same thing, that there's no answers. The fact that uh, they, there's no room for an easy answer, and to these people, every answer is an easy answer. There are no answers. This is the heart of the modern uh, writer and the man in the, working this, in this direction in the arts. So he says, the omission is significant, statements and questions, but no answers. Answers are anathema to the double neos. They know that too many of the old answers were fake. And uh, here, of course, it enters into the cycle that I point out so often in painting, and that is before the coming of the modern painter, for example, you had romantic painting, and this was seen to be a fake whether the romantic or the romantic philosophy behind the romantic painting. Emmanuel Kant in back, the back of him, were, these were romantic philosophers. They had a romantic concept that they could give an answer to life merely on the basis of humanism and, ration, and, and rationalism. And finally it runs out. And after the romantic comes this brutal reality. Uh, and so you find here, uh, they throw aside, seeing that the old romantic answers are... Uh, are only that uh, they throw aside all answers. They don't know anything about another kind of an answer, a different kind of realism. The analysis goes on, so the double neos play the game with their own rules. Draw the situation, don't draw the conclusion. We don't have messages other than the optic ones to deliver, which, of course, would remind you now of much modern painting if you're making your associations. So you just draw the situation, don't draw a conclusion. Well, you remember, this is already the way I've described Bergman's silence, and this is absolutely, this is the tie here. 
So here you have the double neos uh, in exactly the same situation. A statement, there are no answers. You are, there are no answers. You just set up a film and you, uh, you film it. Now the double neo films, however, good many of them, if you look at them, they, they are like the writers that use normal syntax and normal words. They're making this statement, but with more or less a normal series of situations. On the other hand, Fellini, of course, has gone a step further. Now we've come, now we're coming to the first key into, uh, into, uh, toward the theater of the absurd a bit, bit closer. And this is, uh, Juliet of the Spirits. Juliet of the Spirits. I don't know if it's his last film or not, but it's almost, if not the last. And here you have a very different note. You not only have a statement of absurdity, but you use it, uh, you film it in an absurd situation. And now we've made a step. And this is the step uh, which is the key to the theater of the absurd. In other words, there's a difference between uh, sitting down and stating, whether it's with a camera or whether it's with a pen or a brush, <laughs> stating absurdity in, in rational terms. There's a difference between that and making the leap and stating the absurdity in the absurd term. And in uh, Juliet of the Spirits, this is exactly what he's done. I remember as a Farrell House student here, very bright boy, when I was in Manchester, uh, he, uh, we picked him up the curb on the way to the station, and he says, oh, I've seen Julia the Spirits, I forget, I forget whether it was once or twice, and I'm going again, because I'm going to figure out what was real in it and what was an illusion and everything. And I thought, well, old fellow, you can go 16 times. Mm -hmm. Makes no difference. Uh, or 160, and get 160 answers. Because the simple fact is that, uh, that in this film, there is no way to tell what is real and what is illusionary. It's exactly the genius of the film. It's exactly the genius of the film. The thing is set up so that it's not only an absurd life, which Fellini's already stated in many of his other films, but he states it in a way so that the whole structure is absurd. He has an absurd structure to state an, an absurd situation which at least has the virtue of, uh, of, of being more consistent. At least that much. And in some ways a greater force. You have a force of, of uh, almost, you feel something almost mystical in this. So now what you have, and I've chosen that word with care, because as we'll see, uh, this is uh, very much in also in the direction of the theater of the observed. So with Fellini, you come to an entirely different situation. With Fellini, you come to a situation in which you're not only saying the universe is absurd and that man especially is absurd, but you're saying uh, beyond this uh, that uh, the best way to say this is an is in absurd uh, method or means. Uh, going back to the black writers, which I dealt with in the second half of tape 50, there was a review on the Black Writers in Time magazine of March 4, 1966. You'll notice most of these are very, very recent, actually. That's why I wanted to bring them together. And this is a long thing. What is it, two pages? Yeah, two pages was a leading article. Time essay, it was called. And like most things, though I think time's, time is a part of this destructive thing of our generation, yet nevertheless, uh, up to a point, time analyzes rather well. And it calls the American humor hardly a laughing matter. American humor hardly a laughing matter. 
and uh, has a subheading, A Dark Breed. And then I'll read a little bit. In Catch-22, now a classic, uh, now a classic of this yawn, Joseph Heller represents an American pilot who would bomb his country's basis for cost plus 6%. In Stern, Bruce J. Friedman deflates the American concept of the hero by making his anti-hero a round-shouldered, wide-hipped, urban Jew, helpless to handle his neighbors, his job, or even his flirtatious wife. Jews, of course, have no priority on black humor. They have said before, however, that most present uh, men, uh, top American humorists, are Jewish. And I would agree to this. What you have here is the, is the modern atheistic uh, Jewish man with his great intelligence and his tremendous ability projecting his, uh, his uh, uh, not his Jewishness, has anything to Jewish, uh, do with his Jewishness, merely his modern manness on man. And a lot of this is this. It is the, is the Jew who doesn't know who he is. It is the Jew who is a modern man. Nothing, not because he's Jewish, because the Gentiles are the same. It's just that these men are clever. And hence a great number of them are able to project their view into our whole culture with very clever means. Be very well, if we as Christians can learn how to say our message uh, also with this penetrating a thrust. And uh, so a lot of these are this, but as he points it out, it isn't always Jewish. He says he is one of the darkest stars, Terry Southern, a Texas Gentile, has been operating successfully in the black for years with ham-handed satires on uh, uh, pornography, candy, uh, nuclear war, Dr. Strangelove, and money and morality, the magic Christian. As I pointed out before in my lectures, however, you can say what you will. He's a very dirty writer, a very destructive writer, but he's a clever one. Because even in Candy, as I pointed out, the full name of this, this girl is Candy Christian. So he has two of his best-known works with the name Christian in it, The Magic Christian and Candy Christian. And he does it quite deliberately. He understands exactly what he's doing. And the other is Dr. Strangelove, of course, everybody thought was marvelous. Uh, it just happens, of course, that the Englishman who cooperated with him in writing Dr. Strangelove just has come to the end of the road and has committed suicide in the last few, a month or so. He's killed himself. So here you have uh, this man, this man, the time ran out with him. It's sort of like Hemingway, but much earlier. Uh, he goes on. For Heller, who is another one of these writers, the change to black, uh, to basic black, was not made basically for laughs. Quote, I am not using hu humor as a goal, but as, uh, uh, but as a means to a goal, he says. The ultimate effect is not frivolity, but bitter pessimism. And this is the whole thing. As critic Leslie uh, Fiddler uh, sees it, quote, black humor fits any anyone worth reading today. It is the only valid contemporary work, end of quote. And I would say in general... That's right. Scratch the romanticism, scratch the, the, uh, the, the escape uh, sort of television and things, and that's just absolutely right. What you have is what's black. This is modern man. This is, what's, this is where you're left. So you have this over and over again. In a way, you can say the two pre precursors are uh, Saad on one side and Edgar Allan Poe on the other. These are, the, in a way, very much the two, fa the two parents. And uh, you have just blackness and horror, absurdity. 
uh, it would be well worth, let me read this thing on Catch-22 again. Presents an American pilot who would bomb his country's basis for cost plus 6%. You have here a situation, in other words, of, of utter neutrality in the area of morals. Now, of course, the most famous of all these, all this kind of thing in cinema is James, is James Bond. It's very obvious, isn't it? And, uh, uh, fortunately, we have an expert on BBC who breaks down James Bond. And it's Jean Le Carre, of all people. The man who wrote The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And in the BBC listener, uh, list, BBC listener of April 14, 1966, page 548, uh, Le Carre answers questions on James Bond. So this becomes now an expert's testimony. And it's intriguing. And I would tie it up with Catch-22. It's the same thing. It's a different kind of a situation. Uh, it's in the area of pop art, as McCary himself points out. But it doesn't change anything. It's the same mentality as Catch-22. Uh, questioner asks, but your style g goes deeper than this. You have developed what I suppose we can best describe as the anti-hero, haven't you? Now we come to anti-hero. Anti-philosophies, anti-theologies, anti-statements, anti-heroes. And they're all tied up together. This is not a fluke. Uh, they are tied up together. There's a, this is a, something that is a part of the structure. The people who understand, understand that there's relationships here. And he answers, I don't quite believe in the notion of an anti-hero. But now listen, then he goes on. Uh, since then, something else, uh, he's a little further on, since then something else has emerged, something very interesting. That is the James Bond kind of hero. I call this the consumer goods hero. Now listen with care. And this is you. You see, you have two kinds of people go see James Bond, people who just go to be entertained. And then, but there's more to it than this. This is the man who surrounds himself with all the things that are technique, with the charms of supercars, super expendable girls, with cigarette lighters that go off with a bang, with everything which, in artistic terms, replaces love or emotion. Now, let me read it again. Don't laugh, because it's funny, and then, it, then it's like real black humor. You cry, you know? This is the whole point of sick jokes. The whole point of the modern sick joke is that you, you kill yourself when you laugh because suddenly you realize you're laughing at yourself. This is the whole point of the sick joke. Now listen. With everything which in artistic terms replaces love or emotion. With everything which in artistic terms replaces love or emotion. In other words, there's no what there's no place for in it is love or emotion. And he's absolutely right. It's not, not one little wiggle and he's being wrong in this. Uh, you can take James Bond on that mag magic carpet and given the prerequisites of the affluent society, I might say in the, in the passing that the man who plays James Bond, the actor, is, is building a chalet just below us here on the mountain. If you come to Waymo, gradually you meet everybody, you know. Um, so here you, let's read on. You could take James Bond on that magic carpet and given the prerequisite of the affluent society, uh, given above all an identifiable villain of whatever kind, and weak people need enemies. Now listen to this. And then remember Catch-22. He'd bomb his own bases for cost plus 
uh, cost, pl uh, cost plus 6%. You could dump him in the middle of Moscow and you would get a ready-made Soviet agent. I find him, in this sense, extremely cosmopolitan. He's an Etonian and so on, but in fact he seems to me to correspond more to the kind of international manager type. The young rich fellow of 38 or 39 who has discovered that promiscuity is one of the privileges of wealth, who has developed a pretty hard-nosed cynicism toward any sense of moral obligation. Now this, I feel, is, is the crucial point. Uh, James Bond could, could be on either side by chance. It's catch-22 in pop art is really what's involved. I think, think this, think John le Carre really understands James Bond. This is, I think, an unconscious but pretty accurate reflection of some of the worst things in Western society, and it will soon reflect the worst things in Eastern society. And I agree with this. Uh, the Marxist has stopped the clock, but the clock's starting to move again. And you have, you don't find idealistic communists very much anymore, but you find just pragmatists on both sides of the Iron Curtain. Um, we go down a little further, and he says, um, we have not got an identifiable enemy. We have an ideology instead with which we must come to terms. And it seemed to me that the Western dilemma of the small man is that the institution we create to combat the ideology to fight the Cold War are getting so big that the individual himself is losing his identity in our society, just as he is in Eastern society. Now he turns it around, you see. And he says, we're going to pot faster in a way because of this uh, clock-stopping business in Moscow. And the clock's just has started. But nevertheless, in this side of the thing, the East is far ahead of us. And that is, over there, man has already lost his identity, and now we're losing it. And I would just say, this is another illustration, that the men who really produce these things are not just producing nothing. They've really thought things over with great care. This analysis by John McCary, I feel, feels masterful. So the man in the Marxian world has lost his identity, and now we're losing it. On the other hand, we, because we didn't have the temporary clock stopping of making the state a, an arbitrary absolute, or if you remember, remember John, uh, Terry Southern in the Writers in Revolt saying that in communist Russia, uh, they kept a concept of sort of arbitrary law. But in the West, we just became everything, be, all the integration point became psychological. So he said, Terry Southern in his own way, said, we're the first culture in history that ever got rid of crime. Very clever statement. He doesn't mean there's no crime. He just means we don't call crime anymore. It's all psychological. Uh, so we've fallen, we, we, so here you have uh, the pressure. But nevertheless, uh, Le Carre understands that the man on the other side already has lost his identity in this reference to the state. Now he says we lose ours too. And he goes on a little bit further. Uh, he says this, uh, we are sacrificing the individual in our battle against the collective. And I would just say it isn't the, it's just in the whole structure of, of our situation, not just in the intentions of, on two sides of the Iron Curtain. This is the supreme paradox. I want people, now listen to this, now this is what, uh, this is what Le Carre said, and it's a very intriguing thing. I want people, when they open my book and begin reading, to feel, God, this could be me. When they are reading the, this other type of a heroic book, I think they're saying, oh gosh, 
I wish this were me, and that is a sharp difference. Both may be, in long hair terms, pop art, but I believe that mine, at the moment, has more application to our dilemma than the other. In other words, there's no reason to, uh, to re see one of these heroes and say, I wish I were that hero. But if you really understand it, and you really understand what the hero represents, you think, uh, isn't that awful? That's really kind of a mirror of myself. So in reality, in other words, following Le Carre's analysis, James Bond is just pop art uh, in, the, in the, a pop art form of Catch-22. It doesn't matter which side of it you fight on. That is the point. The point is this is just your fate in a sense. And that's all there is to it. And I think his interesting thing is here, both may be in long hair terms pop art, becomes extremely important. Because pop art, of course, is saying the same thing. We're dealing with the absurd. This is what we're keeping right on with, is the absurd. Two ways to stay the, state the absurd. State the absurd in normal syntax, in normal language, or to reach across and begin to bring in absurd situations to, to uh, stress the absurd. And I suppose as far as James Bond is concerned, different people see it in different ways. Uh, but some of them certainly would see that's the same thing, that it's an absurd situation, a teaching an absurd. Though others might not see it that way. On the other hand, the real pop artist man, of course, is, uh, is Andy Warhol, W-A-R-H-O-L. And he is the, he's the, he's Mr. Pop Art. And I have here a British paper, The Observer, uh, of June 12, 1966, even more recent, just almost yesterday. The Observer of June 12, 1966. And the, um, there's a big article on Andy Warhol. Big spread, like this, terrific. The center of the whole paper, Andy Warhol. And he deserves, I must say, a big spread because he really is a very important man today in expressing, uh, expressing this whole situation of the absurd in very strenuous ways. He's the man you know who, uh, who uh, paints all the Campbell soup cans. But there's something very interesting about painting the soup, the soup cans that I found out, I think it's in here, uh, somewhere I've seen it recently. I believe it's in here, though. And that is um, that he doesn't paint them. They have what they call the factory. And his assistants make them from a silk screen. And then they sell them for $8,000 a piece. Just hold your breath. And uh, here you have then uh, this, uh, what, what goes on in this man's mind? Well, you know, he's, he's been making films, the far-out films. And... Uh, Nothing new particularly. Most of you would have heard this before, but nevertheless. Um, his film Sleep consists solely of a man sleeping and lasts more than six hours. <laughs> well, you just, do you laugh or cry? You know, I, I have a hunch this is, uh, that's, a, no, that's a different kind of sick joke, and then you feel badly about laughing too. It is funny, and yet, and yet really, uh, what do you say when uh, when that really is uh, is uh, is what people want to see, and what people are stating? We're talking about absurdity. And uh, I haven't seen this film at all, 
But the fellow really just lies down. He's sound asleep. And for six long hours, the camera grinds on a man sleeping. And tosses in his sleep. And that's all there is to it. And uh, this is what uh, Warhill himself says. He says, I haven't thought about my films. They just keep me busy. And I, I think here you're playing. Now you're in the game. You're in the absurdity. This is another big area that's introduced in this whole thing, and that's gamemanship. And the gamemanship, in a way, is the saddest part of the lot, I think. Because the people who really are in this understand that the reason you go through the motions of a game is because that's all there is. What you do is fill up time. You could do the opposite. It really doesn't matter. None of that matters. Um, in Couch, another one of his movies, uh, Naomi Levine lies naked on a couch, ignored by a man turning a motorbike. And it just goes on and on and on. That's it. And um, he goes further. Um, he speaks of his being a mass communicator, which is right. He's a someone has described uh, pop art as dada plus uh, plus. Uh, uh, modern Communications or Madison Avenue commercialism and I think this is a good definition of part of pop art Dada you know uh, was started here in, in Zurich came along the line in modern art and Dada is simply means nothing so the word Dada is rocking horse which they chose by just chance but uh, the whole concept of Dada is nothing nothing equal uh, everything equals nothing and uh, pop art has been said to be, and I think properly so, a matter of um, of the dada concept uh, put forth in the modern commercialization. And um, speaks here of everything in his work being leveled down to a universal monotony, which he says, which he can always sell for $8,000. And then he says, he speaks on about his own work. It stops you thinking about things. I wish I were a machine. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want human emotions. I've never been touched by a painting. I don't want to think. The world would be easier to live in if we were all machines. It's nothing in the end anyway. It doesn't matter what anyone does. And then he asked me if I could think up a better word than machine. I thought hard and suggested computer. Oh, that's marvelous. I wish I were a computer. And this, that's his refrain, everything, apparently, if you say it to him, he just says, oh, that's marvelous, which is part of the whole structure. I'd like to read this again, because this really, this is Andy Warhol, and he isn't kidding. He's really telling you what's in his head, what he thinks. Uh, there's really no difference between this and uh, and other forms of absurdity. And uh, here you have a man who has made absurdity a, uh, a com uh, and projected it commercially on a whole public. And um, and what it really is is an absurd statement with absurd means. It's really what it is. It's an absurd statement with absurd means. This is the second class. We had the first class of, of statement of absurdity with, na with normal means. But in pop art, what you have, in these films especially, what you have is a statement of absurdity 
with absurd means. It stops you thinking about things. I wish I were a machine. I don't know. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want human emotions. I've never been touched by a painting. I don't want to think. The world would be easier to live in if we were all machines. It's nothing in the end anyway. It doesn't matter what anyone does. So here you have a real statement of absurdity projected in a really sick fashion uh, through the through commercialization. And this becomes an important point. It's, a, it's commercial, commer, the money of commercialization that projects this. And yet what it projects is what is really absurd. Not everybody understands it, but it has its impact. Um, and, uh, and this, I think, is another sad statement. Uh, the uh, Billy Link, age 25, is known as the foreman of the factory. And uh, this is what he says. Warhell does practically nothing, but he does it very well. He's Andy Warhell, and that's all he has to do. And that's not funny, you know? I mean, this is real death. These people aren't dummies. For instance, it may, quotes another fellow here who majored in English at Harvard. Most of these... Um, and this is the end of Warhell's statement. And again, don't laugh, because I don't think it isn't meant. It really, oh, well, I would um, I would mention his nightclub. He calls his nightclub pl the plastic inevitable. The plastic inevitable. And the, uh, this I think he really understands something, that you're away from nature, you're away from reality, and if you're going to build these things, it's just better to build it in plastic. And the the last statement, which the uh, the observer quotes, because it's kind of I, I imagine they think it's kind of uh, intriguing, but I think again it's sad because I don't think Warhell means it to be to be merely clever. And Warhell left me with these words: "My work won't last anyway. I was using cheap paint." And I think he did a pur I, I think he does it purposely. Now you have here there. This is another form of the statement of modern absurdity in the pop art. And you remember that John Le Carre uh, tied up, uh, tied up uh, the, uh, the movie thing, the cinema thing, the picture thing, whichever country you come from, uh, with, the, um, uh, with pop art. So once again, I would point out the same thing I keep pointing out. Don't think these men don't understand. The imitators, the imitators don't understand. But the people who do it, they really understand. And you fall then into two, into two kinds of statements of absurdity in all these fields. Uh, the one is an absurd statement with normal syntax in the various fields. And the other is uh, going a step further and express, expressing, um, expressing the abnormal or the, uh, the absurd in absurdity. Now, in Britain, the man who has best expressed this is Francis Bacon, the painter. It's an entirely different area. And in a way, these things seem widely diverse. Jane Bond, Francis Bacon, seems sort of at the end of the end of the world from each other. But they're really not, is the point. This is the point I'm making. It just depends how you're going to state the absurdities. And Francis Bacon, I guess, I guess most of you know Francis Bacon's paintings. A good many of us would say they're the worst things that you could find. But worse, not in the sense of being meaningless but in a way being brutally consistent. And I have a little book here, Francis Bacon, uh, uh, and the essay on him is written by John Russell. And it's published by, I don't know how they pronounce it, in London. 
M E T H U E N. I'm not quite sure how that publisher. What is it? Methuen. All right, Methuen. In London in 1964. And uh, there's an essay plus illustrations. It's the most complete little thing I've ever seen on Francis Bacon. Now read along um, in this introduction. The artist statements. I would like my pictures, these are direct quotes, I would like my pictures, oh no, uh, yes, I'd I would like my picture, pictures to look uh, uh, as if a human being had passed between them like a snail, leaving a trail of the human presence and memory trace of past events as a snail leaves its slime. And that isn't so bad, because you wouldn't know what he meant, but he soon gets down to particulars. A little further on, this is another direct quote, also, man now realizes that he is an accident. So now here you have here you have the important word, an accident. Man is an accident. So in other words, in other words, here you have a painter that isn't just trying to shock people, and anyone ought to know that whoever looks at his paintings, people who think he just wants to shock, I could never understand them. Uh, but he's he's making the statement of what modern man sees himself to be, and that is an a, a cosmic accident. A cosmic accident. So now I'll begin the sentence again. Also, man now realizes um, that he is an accident, that he is a completely futile being. So here's real absurdity. He doesn't use the word absurdity, but it's exactly the same thing. He's completely futile. That he has to play out the game without reason. Without reason. Let me read the whole sentence. Also, man now realizes that he's an accident, that he's a completely futile being. He has to play out the game without reason. I think that even uh, when uh, Belasco was painting, even when Rembrandt was painting, they were still, whatever their attitude to life, slightly conditioned by certain types of religious possibilities, which man now, you could say, has had canceled out for him. So he really does understand where the game is. That because now, uh, he says, even a man like Velasca, I think he shouldn't have put these two people in one breath, Velasca and Rembrandt, but it's okay. Um, I don't mean as artists, but I mean in, in their view of life. But nevertheless, he says, whatever their own personal view of life, at least they were slightly conditioned by certain types of religious possibilities. But this is all gone. Man now can only attempt to beguile himself for a time by prolonging his life, by buying a kind of immortality through the doctors. You see, painting has become, all art has become a game by which man distracts himself. You may say it has always been like that, but now it's entirely a game. And what is fascinating is it's going to become much more difficult for the artist because he must really de deepen the game be any good at all so that he can make life a bit more exciting so here you have the same note we've talked about before the gamemanship that art has become a game what you have is a totally a, to a situation which rationality leads to a total concept of vacuum and so you fill it up with something you fill it up with watching a man sleep for six hours or you fill it up or, or you fill it up with uh, something else but this emphasis, it seems to me, in Francis Bacon, uh, with, with a, any of you who reckon, who remember his pictures, 
and everybody ought to know his pictures, not because they're wonderful pictures, but because they're so utterly horrible, and speak with such force. Uh, the he is here. The man who paints these things says that we are we are absurd, and art has become a game. Now I would not know. I think it would be a matter of individual reaction, just as to James Bond, in a very different area. Whether you're going to say this is the first class of the statement of absurdity or the second. Whether it's a statement of absurdity using normal syntax, or whether it's a statement of absurdity using uh, using abnormal syntax, in this case in painting, I think people would have different reactions to that. But anyway, it's a statement of absurdity. He goes on, in my case, all painting, and the older I get, the more it becomes so, is an accident. And this is very important. You can think of... Um, uh, Jacques Pollock putting on his paint as a pure accident. But you can also remember my lectures, those of you who studied them, on the, on the, on Paul Clay, who states, as you remember, I spoke sort of, he has a theory of sort of an, the universe, uh, coming through his painting in a kind of, uh, artistic, uh, Ouija board. That's the way I expressed it. Or John Cage, with the universe speaking, uh, through chance. And interestingly enough, he says something very close to the same thing. In my case, all painting, the older I get, the more it becomes so as an accident. I foresee it. And yet, uh, I hardly ever carry it out as I foresee it. It transforms itself by the actual paint. I don't, in fact, know very often what the paint will do. And it does many things which are much better than I could do it. Perhaps one can say, and, it's an, and then he goes on with the accident business. So here you have, now they're, they're direct quotes from Francis Bacon's own viewpoint. An absurd universe, uh, an absurd universe in, in really a total sense. And uh, some element of, uh, of, uh, of the paint almost taking its own personality. And then, the, then there is the essay uh, by John Russell on Francis Bacon, and he, he reminds us which I'm sure some of you know, that the, the paintings which really exploded in England in 1944 and which got him a reputation are called Three Studies of Figures for the Base of a Crucifixion. And these are, and it, it's not by chance, you see, he chose the crucifixion. These are horrible figures. They really are horrible figures. Endless debate on what they mean. But one thing you have is, is, just, is just total horror. Half-human things. And the, the choosing of the crucifixion uh, as, the, as the setting for this is really a, a very comprehending situation. So what you do is just uh, you, choose this, you choose the crucifixion and then instead of what one would expect, one surrounds it with these subhuman creatures that uh, leave us without, without any knowledge of really what we're dealing with. On a little further in the essay, uh, <laughs> Uh, for Bacon, paints in order to do something practical about a specific problem. That of how to exist as a human being in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. Every unstandardized person, he means rather dull, I think, uh, every unstandardized person knows that it has never been more difficult to dignify the name of a human being. The ancient, he says, even the, even the rather dim ones understand this by this time in our century. The ancient guidances by which people lived no longer exist. 
for the most part, and very few people indeed can direct their own lives and have an integrated sense of their own identity in the, in the, day, in the face of today's pressures. So really and truly, the intriguing thing is there's no real difference between Francis Bacon's painting and pop art. It's a very interesting factor. It's overwhelming, but it's true. One is uh, they're in different levels, and yet at the same time, uh, they're, they're the same thing. Uh, a little further on, the formal portrait, for instance, became an absurdity for two reasons. First, because we no longer believe in a monolithic pre-Freudian concept of personality. Second, because the kind of painting which served that concept in its decadence is now unacceptable to us as painting, quite independently of any shortcoming of psychological understanding. And then he says this, which is intriguing. So it is very much against the odds that Bacon has persuaded thousands of people in this country, in Europe, and the USA, that they are living in the world which he has created. So what he's done is, what it says he's here, amazingly enough, uh, he has been able to take, uh, take many, many people, uh, modern people, and make them see that this is a kind of world they live in. Now, actually, the relationship between this and Sartre's, uh, uh, Sartre's uh, I'm sorry, Sartre's situation in the, uh, in the institution at Charaton, Charaton is not very far removed. It's very, very close. It's really very, very close. We live in a universe without any meaning. And if we can take people actually and set them down and, and they come to realize, they come to see that this is all their world is. It's Francis Bacon's paintings. It is, it's a uh, tremendously overwhelming thing to understand this. To go on a little further, and this is rather crucial, even the crucifixion which has haunted Bacon's work for 30 years is never the crucifixion but simply an event characteristic of men's behavior to one another. Now, you remember I've said over and over again that someone like Salvador Dali's crucifixions, you mustn't think they're the crucifixion of history. They have nothing to do with the crucifixion of history uh, the, in his mystical period. What the crucifixions are with most modern painters are simply man, uh, man in his dilemma. It has nothing to do with Christ. And you merely use the Christ symbol for projection. It's, a, it's a, a convenient symbol. But really what you're talking about is man as he's caught. It isn't just Christ, it's anybody else. But, but you use Christ because of, of, uh, of what's projected in it. And here he points out uh, something of the same nature, and that is Bacon. Bacon's crucifixion is in reference to man against man. It has nothing to do with the Christ of history. It's, you see, this is what men do to men. Of course, he's right about this. But when you, if that's all there is to it, it's, uh, it is indeed black. Um, he goes on again the, this, uh, in this essay. He takes his figures at an unspecified crisis in their existence, a moment at which their public image collapses like an ice cream, like an ice cream in the sun. In the moment of crisis, Bacon's executives pull down the blinds in their single hotel bedrooms and squat like captive hyenas in their $200 suits. And this is, this is I'll tell you, your throat is really cut. And th this man really understands Francis Bacon, and Francis Bacon understands the problem of modern man. This is, this is absurdity. The only way, the only words you can apply to this which makes any sense whatsoever is the word absurd. 
Bacon's subject could be called, quote, the collapse of the bourgeois syndrome. And I agree totally. So one part of this, one part of you start is that these people are saying, are saying, first of all, you fools, uh, you go on, you cabbages, uh, you hardheads, you bourgeois, don't you understand you're a fool? Or as uh, I've expressed it sometimes, uh, if it's a, if it's an absurd universe, why do you, what are you still standing in the queue for? Which is a good way to say it, I think. And this struck me one night. I was in a, bo- in a London fog, a uh, really horrible fog. And I, uh, I went out from when we had our flat at Sloan, Sloan Square, uh, Sloan Gardens, and walked up the block towards Sloan Square. And there weren't going to be any buses. This was sure. It was a real one. And, uh, and I passed the stop, and there was one woman standing there to stop. And there was nobody else in sight. She was utterly isolated from everything by this heavy fog. But just looking at her, you knew she was standing in the queue. I had a tremendous emotional experience in that day. I understood something that night that stood me in good stead. Not happy, but I really understood something. She stood in an, in an isolated situation. There wasn't going to be any bus, but she still was in the queue. And what a, the one great message of a person like Francis Bacon and these writers uh, simply is, you fools, what are you doing in the queue? And I would agree, you see. I think this... Up to this point, this could be a Christian message. Only this far, but nevertheless, it's true. In an absurd universe, why why are you there? And so this emphasis on the the blast against the bourgeois, uh, the bourgeois thing is is uh, one could say a bath if there was a second half to the story. But of course, there is no second half to the story, and so it's nothing except sorrows. And it's a, it's certainly, this is, you understand why this kind of painting is, is blocked from communist countries. Because if you begin to ask this kind of question, the, the stopping of the clock and the artificial uh, statement of the meaning of the individual only in reference to the state just crumbles. I mean, it's just gone. It can't stand up against this kind of analysis. So you understand why they try to keep this kind of art out. Uh, to go on a little bit further in the essay, we're almost the end of it. The success or failure of any individual painting depends on the extent to which the paint has kept its freedom. Here he returns to this. The, the essay now goes back to his own statement of the paint has its own character, which uh, might not strike you as very forcible unless you remember Paul Clay's, what Paul Clay said. You remember our lectures on John Cage's music. Uh it is, uh, the universe is speaking. It's very close to Heidegger, actually. It's, it's very close to Heidegger's concept. So you have here, there's nobody there to speak, but the universe speaks. And the form in which the universe speaks when there's nobody there to speak is art. And, and these people feel this. There's nobody there, but there's something extruding. And I'm, I would be convinced that this is also the case, though it isn't as clearly enunciated as in some others, uh, here in the, this concept of Francis Bacon's uh, uh, freedom of the pain. Uh, the paint has kept its freedom and gone on ahead of the conscious mind. Now notice the conscious mind here, because this becomes important. And anybody who knows 
uh, the struggles of modern communications, and I've heard some of these lectures on modern communications, ought to immediately have all the bells begin to ring. This is what you want to learn to do. You want to learn to to read, know what you're doing, so that you get to a certain place, and without anybody writing you a letter or giving you a lecture on it, that the uh, the little lights come on. So here you have now the paint is going ahead of the conscious mind. Uh, in this is the gamble, which is an important part of Bacon's nature. And because it gets progressively more tempting to rig the game, or more difficult not to do so unconsciously. <laughs> so you want, you want the thing to have its own character. Now, you tie this up at the beginning of the, this is now where, this, one, this is the end of the next to the last page of the essay. There is a difference, as Bacon has said, between paint, which comes across directly on the nervous system, and paint which tells you the story in a, lo in a long uh, diatribe through the brain. Society tries to transfer Bacon's less palatable pictures to the brain, but the paint insists on speaking directly to the nerves. And here you have now, you're, you're introduced, uh, and uh, this is all very much of the theater, will be in the theater of the absurd. Uh, you'll come to the next step in, in the whole thing. And that is, it's all absurd, and yet, nevertheless, in some way, you're, you're hoping for communication. And uh, you have here this whole thing of hot and cold communications, McLuhan's hot and cold communication. Uh, nothing makes any sense, and in spite of it making no sense, uh, you hope there'll be a projection. And what you mustn't do is refer to the brain. You have to put, move it, in other words, uh, in our language here, in my lectures, uh, you have to move it into the upper story. You have to move it away from the logic and the rationality uh, and, uh, and wait for something else. And as we shall see, this isn't just Francis Bacon, but it's built into the structure of uh, the theater of the absurd. It's the theater of the absurd, all this is bears upon it, intriguingly enough. And then two little bits. I've marked them A and B in my own markings here in this book. Bacon has always been an attentive reading of Nietzsche, reader of Nietzsche. Wouldn't you know it? So do you think these people are just a dumb witch? You're, you're stupid, you know, really, if you think so. Bacon has always been an attentive reader of Nietzsche, and his, his work has a dynamic, forward-driving quality, which Nietzsche would certainly have seen the point of. I don't know about that, but but it's intriguing that, anyway, he reads Nietzsche. Then the second half of it, though, is intriguing, because here, uh, the this man who's writing this essay, John Russell, which he wrote in July 1963, just three years ago, he says this. Now, he's looked back to Nietzsche, but he looks forward to something uh, in our own day. Bacon might accept the estimate of our condition which Samuel Beckett puts into the mouth of Pozo in Waiting for Godot. Quote, They give birth astride of a grave, the light gleams an instant, then it is naught once more. And what he does here, I think, is, uh, is the reason I brought this here. And that is, he understands that this is related uh, to the theater uh, of, the, uh, of the absurd. So what you have actually in Francis Bacon is in painting what you have in the theater of the absurd in drama. And to me, this is, in, as I say, is an intriguing thing when I ran across it in this uh, 
This was given to me for my birthday present this year. And when I read it, when I picked it up, standing on one foot, and it really brought me up short. Looking back to Nietzsche, just like the black writers look back to Saad, they're all, and looking and tying it up, tying the Francis Bacon's painting up with, uh, up with uh, the theater of the absurd. The last paragraph of this essay reads like this. The literature of extreme situation, that's in quotes, literature of extreme situation. Now, actually, that is the theater of the absurd or, or the black writers, the black humorists. It's all tied up in this, this. That phrase represents this whole area. The literature of extreme situation arose because one or two writers glimpsed the fact that life was more constantly extreme than people had allowed themselves to believe. Bacon's work and his life are based on the knowledge that all situations are extreme if we understand them well enough and that not to accept them as such is a betrayal of life. It's a tremendous, tremendous conclusion. Uh, it's related to what I pointed out with the double neos in the Italian films. And that is uh, that um, the concept, they've rejected all easy answers and every answer is too easy. In other words, they've rejected all answers. Well, it's exactly the same situation here. Now then, what I've done is, in this introduction, the fact that the theater of the absurd doesn't stand alone. It's, you can't understand the theater of the absurd if you just try to, if you just pick it up and don't see it in its total structure. And reminding you that there are, uh, there are two kinds of stating the, uh, uh, the absurdity of life as these men say it. And the first one is stating it the way Sartre would state it. The absurdity of life in normal syntax and grammar and words. But in certain places, some of these other people have slipped over a step further. And that is stating the absurdity in an absurd fashion. And uh, both stating the same message but one going a bit further and saying, if if it's true that what you're doing is shut up to the absurd, then you then you better find a way to say to do this that's consistent with the message. So there's a consistency between the technique uh, and your message. And of course, there's not a consistency in Sartre or Madame de Beauvoir, even especially Seaman de Beauvoir. Oh, it's tremendous, tremendous, beautiful language. All saying life is stupid. There's an inconsistency between the technique and the uh, and the message, but here and there, uh, you, in these in, in this introduction lecture I've given you, uh, we see something else. We see a consistency brought to bear between the message and the technique. Now, from there, I want to go on. There's one more preparation I want to give, uh, reaching back uh, beyond the theater of the absurd, uh, but related to drama expressly. And then after that, I'll deal with the theater of the observed, specifically uh, in this book, some of you may have seen, The Theater of the Observed by Martin Eslam. So we will go on in that in, the, uh, in next week's lecture.